So for the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians 1. You can turn there in your Bibles um, if you have them. We've been talking about God's transcendent blessings for believers, transcendent blessings. And we use kind of this big word of transcendence on purpose. There's, there's a, a bunch of ideas in it. It's a little hard to define, and that, that's purposeful. But if you look at the banner up there, we talk about God's presence, and then beneath that we see transcendence. And there's arrows up and down in terms of transcendence. And it, it's really this idea that there's something vertical that's happening. So it's, it's not just like this. It's not horizontal. There's something vertical. It's above us. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, we, started, we started with kind of an introduction, but really we started with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's a transcendent verse. There's, there's something about, it's, it's above that we reach to when we think about spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And then there's also this idea that it's, it's beyond ourselves. So it's not something that uh, I do. You don't get spiritual blessings through human interactions this way. The spiritual blessings are, are vertical and above and beyond. And we see in this really, it's in Christ Jesus. Paul just keeps on hammering this point. He uses different words to say it. He says, through Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, in him. But all throughout these verses, um, keeps going back to that point. And when the Bible says, in Jesus, or in him, or, or um, in Christ Jesus, the idea is that we're joined together with Christ Jesus, unified in Christ Jesus. So if you're not joined together with Christ Jesus, if you're not in Christ, the best you can do in terms of blessings are not spiritual blessings. The best you can get in terms of blessings are temporary things, things that rust out, things that fade away, things that you get bored of. That's the worst thing of all, right? You get this new thing and it's so awesome, this blessing. You're like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. My kids do that with toys, right? We give our our boys an allowance for things that they do and just to bless them. And one of them, I won't say who, but you could probably guess if you know the boys, the money just burns a hole in his pocket. And he's like, I got to spend this. I got to spend this. I've got to spend this. So he gets his blessing. He goes to Meyer and he buys Legos. That's his uh, guilty pleasure. Legos, Legos, Legos. He'll play with that just so focused on it for about two hours. And then we have these huge boxes of Legos that sit there. And sometimes he pull them out, but it fades away. And that's the best we can hope for in terms of earthly blessings. They always fade away. They feel so awesome when we get them. And we're like, this is so awesome. And yet they fade away. And we have boxes of blessings that we don't really care about anymore and don't think that are really that big of a deal anymore. Sometimes they're Lego bricks. Sometimes they're homes that we live in. Sometimes they're cars. Sometimes they're relationships that we tried to take advantage of but they all fade away. So only in him, only in Jesus do we have spiritual blessings. And that's what we've looked at the past few weeks. Charles talked about it a couple weeks ago. Um, Jasper spoke on it. Really, in Jesus, we have spiritual blessings. So we're going to review those. And the first one is that we're chosen in Christ. We're chosen in Christ. You can see that in verse 4 if you want to look back at the passage. This is really the doctrine of election. And it's unfortunate throughout the history, well, the recent history of the church, the doctrine of election has become misused, you might say. So a lot of people tend to use it as spiritual nunchucks to smack people upside the head, right? 
But when you see the doctrine of election used in Scripture, that doctrine is used as a, a security blanket to comfort believers who are being persecuted or facing trials and temptations. So we're chosen in Christ. So our confidence doesn't need to be all, all glitchy or herky-jerky, right? Our confidence can be straightforward and going ahead because God has chosen us. And in choosing us, he adopted us. God adopts us into his family. So just as Jesus is God's son, we are God's sons too. He's redeemed us with the, with the, the blood of Jesus. So he paid the price for our sin. We're redeemed and we're forgiven in that. God erases our sin completely. And then we receive wisdom and insight. God equips us and allows us by doing something to us that we can understand his will, and not just the wisdom of understanding his will, but insight to be able to apply that to how we live our lives and interact with other people. And then the passage turns just a little bit and starts to think about the future. And in Christ, we have a bright future. God will bring everything together at his appointed time. So when he chooses to do this is the best time to do it and the right time to do it. But He will bring everything together, so in heaven and on earth, under the authority of Christ Jesus. And in all these things, Paul keeps going back to, in him, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, because the idea is that the blessings that are of spiritual nature are all by him in Christ Jesus. So the emphasis of the the passage is not really what the blessings are alone, but who the blessings are in. So we've got a foundation this morning that you can see up on the screen. Really, praise God. That's the foundation we're working from. Praise God. I think it's three or four times throughout the passage. Praise God. That's our response. And why? Because every spiritual blessing in heaven belongs to us. And why? Because we belong to Christ. So that idea continues in verse 11 if you look at your Bible. Paul wrote verses, well, we've designated them as verses 3 through 14. But when Paul wrote it, it was just this long run-on sentence. And he was apparently very excited about it, kind of like we went on a, a vacation this summer. And to hear my boys talk about it, it was, it was kind of like this. So we went here, and Mom let me get 10 books from the library because I knew I would get bored in the car, so I chose these 10 books. And then we went here, and we stopped for ice cream. We stopped for ice cream seven times. And then we went to this water park, and there was eight slides, and Brock went down, and he did a 360 off. And then my shoes fell off, and we had towels. And then we went over here, and then we got this. And there was a Ben and Jerry shop, and I asked Dad, 20 times if we could go, and finally he let me go because I wore him out. And then we did this, and this, and this, and this. And Paul is kind of writing that in a better fashion than Brock and Hunter, my boys, spoke, right? In a clear thing inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he's excited about what God has done in Christ. And so he writes, if you look at verse 11, in him, remember this is in Christ Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. So that we, who are the first hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. So in Jesus, we have an eternal inheritance. And inheritance is really, you could think of it financially, right? Like, well, when someone dies, I get something. Or you could think of it in terms of the part of our salvation that's promised for the future. When you look at what Jasper preached and then back to what Charles preached, or think about that or simply read verses kind of three to nine, there's this idea about what God has done. And then in what God has done, there's also this idea of what God is doing. He's doing things. But now we get to 
well, what is God going to do? What has he promised to do? So we have the promise of an inheritance. It says in the the passage that we've obtained it. It's certain, but we have yet to acquire possession of it. And our inheritance is really an eternal inheritance. And it's eternal because the Bible says it is. So that's the foundation for everything, right? The Bible says it's eternal. But this is most clearly expressed in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4. You can see the passage written there, but God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So it's not like Legos. It doesn't wear out or run out. And ultimately, it will never, our inheritance will never lose its luster. So day 4,781,224 in heaven is only going to be better in terms of our inheritance than, than day one of our inheritance. It's unfading, kept in heaven for you. If you look at verse 11, and then you think back to verse 5, did, I think Charles preached on verse 5, right? I'm trying to keep track of who did what. But you'll notice a pattern that's similar between the verses. So verse 5, our adoption is through Christ Jesus. Verse 11 starts with in him. So you see the same ideas there, through Christ Jesus, in him. Verse 5, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Verse 11, predestined according to his purpose. You see the, the balance there, the parallel? Verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 11, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Same ideas. And then we get to this. In verse 5, it talks about being adopted as sons, that God adopts us as his sons in Christ. And then verse 11 doesn't talk about adoption. It says that we have obtained an inheritance. We were chosen by God to be adopted. He chose us. He said, I choose them of my own love and will. And since we're adopted, we have obtained every blessing that a son obtains. And that includes an inheritance. Paul emphasizes this in Galatians. He says that we're redeemed so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, listen, if we're a son, then we're an heir through God. He writes the same idea in Romans chapter 8. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And listen, if we're children, we're heirs of God. And then get this, we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God adopted you as a son in Christ. And in that adoption, God obligates himself to you to care for you in every way that a father does. So he does that right now, and I think we've seen that in our lives. And we keep asking, God, do that again. Care for me. But with that adoption as well, God promises an inheritance. So in Christ, in him, you are an heir with Christ, alongside Christ. Sonship, inheritance, go together. God made you a son in Christ, and he treats you as a son like Christ. And notice especially in verse 11, God is not passive in doing this. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
technically, if you're an original language junkie, you would look at the passage and say, Paul didn't write all things. Paul just wrote all. God works all. God works all according to the counsel of his will. And that word all means everything, each, any. It doesn't mean most or some. So when you do the calculations on all or everything, you'll recognize that there's nothing that doesn't fall under the umbrella of all. Because it's all. It's everything. God works everything. Everything. All. All things according to the counsel of his will. So God didn't just make a plan, right? We know that in eternity past, he, it's hard because it's not like at a point he did it. He's just always had this, right? In eternity past. And my brain is starting to melt, so I'm going to move on. But God has this plan, but he didn't just have it and then it, it happens. He works the plan out. So God directed and worked everything that you would be adopted as a son of God. And then God continues working everything so that you will receive the inheritance he promises. Now, what's, what's that inheritance? What's, what's, what's the future part of our salvation look like? And this is where the idea of transcendence is important, to think about big ideas and things that are beyond us and too big to describe. I would bet if we sat down in a room, we could set up an entire year of sermon series just about, about our inheritance in heaven. There's so much to think about and so much to be excited about. So what does that look like? I'm not going to be able to cover it all this morning. And I'm a human being, you know, maybe a four out of ten level preacher or something like that. I don't have the capability to express how awesome it's going to be. But the great thing is that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart if you are a child of God so that you would recognize how awesome your inheritance in Christ Jesus is. So all I have to do is try this morning and God will work it out. But our inheritance includes a new eternal body. This is a big one for me. So for starters, I think of Romans chapter 7, if you're familiar with that passage. And it says, hey, I do things that I don't want to do. I sin and I kind of don't understand it. Because all the things that I want to do, not sinning and honoring God and being a good father and husband and serving well in my church and, and serving God at my place of employment, all those things that I want to do, I end up not doing them. And it's sin that works in this body of death, it's called, that makes that happen. Now, we know that Jesus rescues me from this body of death. So there's this spiritual aspect to it, but there's a physical aspect as well. You ever think about yourself in like, I don't like this about myself. You know, you know what one of those things is for me? And maybe you've noticed about it, and I'm going to point it out. When if, you, if you haven't noticed, then I'm pointing it out. So I'm kind of putting myself into a trap here. I don't like that I'm pigeon-toed. I don't know if that's the PC term for it anymore, but the fact that I walk like this. So when I'm standing, it tends to look funny. When I run, it even looks funnier. Um, I remember Eric Dickerson, who played for the Colts and the Rams, as running back. And when he, he would run, he looked like a gazelle. It was like a human gazelle. And when I run, it looks like a drunk camel in some respects. It just... Um, it didn't mean I was slow, like Heather can attest. I was pretty fast um, many years ago. But I hate that that was the first thing that Heather noticed about me. It's not Heather's fault. It's just when I was born, my hips were like this. I went to all kinds of doctors. They put me in all kinds of braces that now look like medieval torture things, and it didn't work. 
Like, here I am, I stand like this, and my knees go like this, and I just don't like that about myself. And I have a reconstructed knee. So this knee was torn up and put back together. I don't really like that that happened, although God used it to do great things in my life as part of changing my heart to recognize who he is. I don't have a gallbladder. So that was taken out, um, which turned out to be good. It's caused some other problems that I won't go into, or you'll send Todd an email and say I shouldn't talk about those things. But ultimately, my body's breaking down. And I don't have a thyroid. So if you're talking to me, and now I'll know you're doing it. Your eyes will probably go down here. I have this scar across here. I don't, I don't have a thyroid gland. And it's because I'm a genetic mutant. So I have something that's called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2A. And that means at some point in the past, a mutation happened in my genes that said, I am guaranteed to get thyroid cancer guaranteed to do it. I talked to the doctor. He said, yeah, it says 96%, but that 4% are, are people who just died of something else before, before that. So 100% chance of getting thyroid cancer. Based on that, I talked to, we prayed about it. Many of you gave me good advice. I remember getting good advice on things, talking about it, but I just said, I'm just going to take my thyroid out. I don't want it to get cancer. I had all these tests. They're like, you don't have it yet. So you're being preemptive in this. Took it out. Then they dissected it, and they're like, well, you did have cancer. I'm like, can I get a discount on all the tests I got or something? Because you were, you were wrong. But the worst part about it is it, I, I've been okay in terms of my thyroid. It's, some people have hypothyroidism. You take a hormone, and you can do okay. But the thing that I hate about it is that it's a genetic thing. So I have two sons, and I gave my genetic brokenness to one of my sons which means that Brocker, who's our little pistol, he's just a savage of a six-year-old. It means that at some point in his life, he has that 96% chance. Now, based on the disease, it's, it's probably going to be a while off, but I hate that. I just hate that. I hate it. I hate that I gave it to him. I didn't know I was doing it. And then I think of my mom. In 2003, she was diagnosed with, um, they thought it was multiple sclerosis at the time. And then it turned out not to be, and they did all these tests. You can imagine how much that costs. Sometimes they're not right. Keep getting more tests. And she was diagnosed with um, neuromyelitis optica and like 20 other things. Back on now. Note to self, do not hit pack of microphone. But thinking about my mom, 2003 and then beyond, her body's just kind of been degrading. And they've, they've been able to do some things um, in terms of slowing that down. But I think of my mom and I'm like, I, I hate that. I hate the fact that we're all dying and breaking down. And if you're young, you probably don't think about it. But when you start to get older like me and some of the other people in this body, you recognize that you're headed on a path to death. So you read 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 49. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. If you're a fast turner, you may. But Paul writes this to the church in Corinth with this understanding of this body of death that we live in. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. 
I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, listen to this church. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the promise of God that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? So our inheritance includes eternal life. We have eternal new bodies where maybe I'll be pigeon-toed, but if that's the case, it's going to be the best pigeon-toed ever. And I'm going to have a thyroid and a gallbladder and everything's going to work the way that it's supposed to be. And then I can live eternally with Jesus because most of us learned it in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus said this, praying to his father, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's what eternal life is. And then John had the privilege. I would have loved to have this. And I pray that God might grant me in some way that I would have it now. But to see forward to what heaven looks like, where it's said about Jesus, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. Nor crying like I'm doing right now, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Eternal life. And those eternal lives that we have in Christ Jesus are going to be lived in this eternal home, a place. And that's heaven. God said to his people in the Old Testament, He said, um, Go up, take possession of the land that I've given you. And the interesting thing about that is some of them just didn't do it. I don't know if they were lazy or if they were afraid, but some of the tribes that God promised things to you, they just didn't go do it. So they never got their inheritance. They didn't get their allotted portion. And then some went, right? And it went great because the power of God was working through them, and they conquered the land, and they were living there. But there was spiritual declension. They faded from God. The new promised land, heaven, is different than that. Jesus said this to his disciples when they were worried about him going away. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So we get excited there because we hear about mansions. Jesus keeps encouraging his disciples. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So when we read descriptions of heaven, perhaps you've done that in the book of Revelation or elsewhere in Scripture. It's easy to focus on. It says that the walls were like Jasper. Now, when I read that, I'm like, I don't want the walls to be, to be like Jasper. Like, I don't want a walled city of short, bald guys with a southern accent guarding my city. But it's just a mineral, like a quartzite mineral. Um, The walls were like jasper. And then it talks about sapphire and topaz and all these things that are like, those are high value things. We think about those things in heaven, right? What are the most common ideas of heaven? Pearly gates, right? And streets of gold. So it's easy to focus on physical glory and things like that. But the blessing of heaven is an access and proximity to God. There's an author, uh, I think some of the ladies would know who this is, maybe men as well, although they probably wouldn't admit reading it, but um, Jen Wilkin, if you're familiar with Jen Wilkin, 
in the September issue of Christianity Today magazine. She wrote a, a little piece about heaven. And it was iconoclastic, challenging the way that we think about heaven. But she wrote, heaven is a place where precious metals and stones are trodden underfoot as common road dust. Where our crowning personal honors are cast at the feet of God. Where the people and objects and institutions to which we have ascribed our worship will fall from their lofty places. It's a place whose inhabitants at last and finally obey The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So our inheritance in heaven isn't just this redemption of the idols that we have right now in terms of precious things. It's access and proximity to God. Now you might be wondering at this point, hey, that's kind of a short sermon. Or did the music team come up a little too early? If you look at verse 12, it says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That we who are the first to hope in Christ is really talking about the Jews. The Jews were the first to believe in Christ. You know why that happened? Because God wanted it to be that way. He said in, in Romans 1, we see that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of salvation to all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Greek. God wanted it to be that way. But then God brought non-Jews together in Christ Jesus. So the Bible distinguishes between Jew and non-Jew. It really does. But the emphasis in terms of salvation is that our hope of salvation is always in Christ Jesus. Always in Christ Jesus. And why did he do this? First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The passage says that all these things, all his purposes and plans were carried out all for the praise of his glory. So it would be silly if this morning we were thinking about, all right, God has done all these things. And then we'll just move on to the next sermon point, right? Why do we segment our lives like that? Why do we look at when I'm talking as teaching and not worship? And when we're singing here as not teaching and just worship? Why do we do that? So we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to praise God together. And then I'm going to get back up, so don't get freaked out after the music's over and I come back up. It's a double sermon. That's what we do at West Olive. Two sermons for the price of one. And you know what? You get what you pay for. But we're going to praise God together. And why are we going to do that? Because when you look at his eternal plan, if you read through Ephesians 3, uh, through Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, his eternal plan is that we would be doing this. So the way that we segment our lives now, where, oh, we're going to praise now and just do this here now, and then we're going to do this and this and this, that's not how it's going to be in eternity. I don't know exactly what eternity will be like, but I know this, that most of it will be to the praise of his glory, that we'll be looking at what God has done and who he is at Christ Jesus and say, this is how it's going to be. I love you, God. I want to worship you, God. So we're going to do that together now. I'm going to pray, and then Corey's going to lead us, and the musicians are going to lead us. Um, and l- let's not hold back. Let's ask God to do it again. Heavenly Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. And we see the work that you've done in Christ Jesus to take us wretched sinners from the pit of despair and take us up t- to be with you in heaven and to promise that. And part of me wants you to do it right now. And yet we know that you're patient and that you have a plan for salvation. So even some of those children were up here that were up here this morning, You've purposed that they would be saved, and I want them to be saved. So thank you for your patience and writing their names in the, in the book of life as you might. So do that, God. Save those children just as Charles prayed. And keep us now as we worship you. Do something in our hearts that we might give you a level of praise that corresponds with what you have done for us and who you are. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior.
Praise God. Let's stand up and worship. Come on. Praise you, Lord. Worship is the right response to your word. Come on, worship with Leanne this morning. in their worship.
Jump in your volume. Come on, go to the next notch. Come on, in the presence of our King, sing it louder. Take your seats. Let's hear God's word some more this morning. So I don't know if you went to summer camp. Am I on? Just someone give me a thumbs up. I don't know if you went to summer camp, and there's this thing that happens at summer camp that's called the mountaintop experience, even the summer camp experience, where you're kind of like, you recognize what God has done, and you get it, and you're all up here. And then Monday, when you go back to whatever is after summer camp, and you're like, whoa, what happened? I think that's what happens every week to us. D.L. Moody is a, a famous pastor. Well, if you don't know who he is, and I said famous, then that's kind of strange. But D.L. Moody, who was a pastor of a big church in Chicago, said that we're like leaky vessels. We always need to be underneath the fountain of God's truth in life. And that's, that's true. So when we think about new bodies, when I think about multiple endocrine neoplasia, type 2A being erased from Brock's body if he's in Christ. It's like, yeah, yeah. When I think about my mom walking again, yeah, that's, it's going to be awesome. And then when I drive to work and almost hit a deer and our kids don't obey in church and there's, I don't know, maybe there's the, a dessert at the potluck that, that I wanted that isn't there. All these things happen in our lives, and it just starts to erode things. We're at this place that seems so awesome, and then, and then it just goes away. And the worst thing of all isn't like the terrible trials. Heather and I have gone through some trials in our life. You know what? God's presence has been so awesome in those trials to the point where I look back at some of the trials that we've endured, and I, there's this weird fondness to them. When I look back at that, I'm like, that was awesome who God is in that and what he's done. The worst thing of all is when there's this kind of like bored, okay, numb apathy where you're just like, hey, it's okay. 
then we wonder. Sometimes we do it out loud um, if we're verbal processors, right? But we wonder out loud. I wonder, I wonder what this means or what is this all about? Like, why do, why do I keep sinning? Like, why can't I stop sinning? Even though I, I probably don't tell everyone about it, I don't confess it to God even, why can't I stop? Or, or what's going on? What does this mean? Maybe those promises of heaven are allegorical and it's just kind of something that's happening now, welling up in me. It's like, well, why isn't it welling up in me then? And then it's like, I wonder if I'm saved. All those thoughts matter to God. We don't say them out loud, right? Because we're ashamed because we won't sound like good Christian boys and girls. Those thoughts matter to God. He cares about you. So your trials and fears and doubts cares deeply about those things. He's not unaware that I am weak and I need reassurance that he is working. And so God gives us the Holy Spirit that we would have eternal security, eternal security. I had to throw in my Reformed theology plug there. Eternal security. Verse 13, in him you also. So remember the Jews, so that we were the first to hope in Christ. Now we're talking about Gentiles. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. As you look at verse 13, I want you to notice the timing. When, when, when. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So this is a singular event. It happened at one point in time. You don't have to know some exact date. Some people do know that, you know, August 8th, 2000, whatever, at 428 a.m. Like they know that about their salvation. But salvation happens at a point in time. And it comes by hearing the gospel and believing in Jesus. It says in chapter 2 of Ephesians that we're going to get to pretty soon that you're saved by grace through faith. This doesn't mean that you, you earned your salvation by believing, like belief is the, the, the means by which you earn your salvation. It means that God worked because he works all things according to the counsel of his will, that God worked in you to produce the means through which you were saved. And that's hearing and believing. So you heard, you believed. God produced that in you. God didn't save you before the foundation of the world. I know that sounds kind of weird. God chose you before the foundation of the world. But you were saved when you heard that you were a sinner and you needed Jesus and you chose Jesus, understanding that he's the means by which you're saved. When you believed in Jesus, And that salvation is going to come to completion, just like we already praised God for in the future, and it's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. So when you heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, the Bible says that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You received the Holy Spirit right then and there. So a person is either uh, sealed with the Holy Spirit or not sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's dependent on their salvation. Some people think of it kind of like, I don't know, like karate belt system, so that when I first believed in Jesus. Yeah, I was sealed with the Holy Spirit, but I was like Holy Spirit white belt. Um, Started out just kind of partially sealed in a certain way. And then as I progressed and and did some things and demonstrated some things that I did, then I'm like double super secret anointed um, Holy Spirit black belt. But that's not what this passage says. It says that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So when we heard the gospel and believed, 
It happened right then and forever sealed with the Holy Spirit. So being sealed has some different ideas in the Bible, and they kind of all apply to the sealing that we have in the Holy Spirit. So God seals us with the Holy Spirit, and it means that we're secure. When we look at being sealed by the Holy Spirit, we're secure in something. So I think of the tomb that Jesus was placed in. It was, it was sealed. It means it was locked. It was not accessible. And then looking ahead in Revelation, um, the devil's bound up in chains and thrown in a pit, and it's sealed over him. So until God lets the devil out of that pit, um, when that happens, he's sealed. So there, it's secure. Similarly, when we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, it means we're, we're locked into God. We're secure in God. God's promises are locked down in our lives. They're not going anywhere. Nothing can get, a, get in and take them out of us, and they can't escape. They're sealed. Airtight. Sealed also is this idea of authenticity and ownership. So if you're a technical person, the idea of a SSL certificate, it shows authenticity. This HTTP request is coming from who I thought it was. Sorry, like four of you understand that, but I had to say it given my vocation. Um, A registered letter says this came from this person. And it it says this really came from them. They're They're the owner of this letter. And God seals us with the Holy Spirit to show that he owns us and that it's true that that happens. So we're marked as authentically belonging to God. Paul wrote this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. John wrote it too, multiple times. If you read the letter, First uh, John, multiple times he said, by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. The Holy Spirit confirms we have a genuine relationship with God because he's made us his own. So authenticity and ownership. And finally, sealed has this idea of authority. The Holy Spirit is a seal of a authority for believers. So I'm not God. I think you know that. Um, and yet, I can do the work of God under the authority of God because I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. God tells me to do things. I do that under his authority. I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. I carry the authority of God, not because I am God or have the power of God, but I have the power of God in me by the Holy Spirit to do his work. I have that authority. And so do you if you're in Christ Jesus. So we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have security and certainty that he's chosen us and has ownership over us, and then the authority to do what he says. And he's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Guarantee, some of you know this, I'm sure if you've studied this passage or looked elsewhere in Scripture, it's a financial word. Maybe, uh, depending on what translation you're reading, it says pledge. Is our pledge or um, down payment even. In the ancient Greek, it had that idea. It was a down payment, maybe earnest money. If you're into real estate, you know the idea of earnest money. It's something that you give ahead of time, a portion of what you're going to give in full, but it's given ahead of time, um, and then you get the full thing later. So kind of in, in that respect, the Holy Spirit is a portion of our inheritance that we don't have to wait for, which is a really cool idea. When I think about all the promises of my inheritance, um, that's a pretty tantalizing understanding of being sealed and guaranteed by the Spirit. But that's, I don't think that's really at the heart of what Paul is getting at here. 
don't think it's like, well, I get a, a portion of the Holy Spirit now and then I get fullness later. I think that idea is true. But it's not the heart of this passage. And the heart is this. Having chosen you, so God chose you and adopted you, and he redeemed you according to his will. He, he forgave you and he gives you wisdom and insight. God continues to work in you to make sure that you will be with him forever in heaven. The Holy Spirit is not just a percentage of our future inheritance that we get to have right now. Not just that. He's the power by which God ensures that his purposes and wills come to, will comes to pass in your life. The Holy Spirit makes sure that what God wants happens in our life. So you're guaranteed an inheritance in Christ. It's going to happen. You'll make it to heaven. God accepts no other outcome. God wants an outcome. That's clear. That's his purpose and will. And it, he'll accept no other outcome but that, that which he's known and purposed. And because he wants that, he's going to provide the only agent, the only power that can do that, the only one on heaven and earth who can shape and direct the future. And that's himself. God, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee. And he accomplishes this in many ways, but the Bible talks about kind of six specific ways. So this is not exhaustive, um, but it's six specific ways that the Holy Spirit works in our lives as our guarantee, God's guarantee that he will see us through. And the first way is that the Holy Spirit teaches us. Jesus said to his disciples, hey, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that, he is, um, that Jesus had said to them. And how, how does the Holy Spirit do this? The Holy Spirit does it by speaking the word of God. Jesus told them that as well, the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, and that's from God the Father, he will speak. That's what the Holy Spirit does, speaks the word of God. And Paul wrote this. Now we've not received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Listen that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The way that you understand the will of God isn't the work of a certain type of education. It's not the special gifts of a, of a certain preacher. It's not a various intensive ways that you find to study the Bible or anything like that. The way that you understand the will of God is a work of the Holy Spirit. So if you can understand what I'm saying right now, I could bumble and stumble and get all kinds of different ways in front of you. But if the Holy Spirit wants you to understand right now the, the heart and depth of this passage, it's going to happen because the Holy Spirit gets what he wants. So the Holy Spirit makes what Jasper taught last week in chapter, or verse 8 rather, the Holy Spirit makes that happen. Wisdom and insight, he teaches us. He also transforms us. God promised through the prophet Ezekiel many hundred years before um, Jesus came to this earth incarnate. He wrote that he would give his people a new heart and a new spirit, removing their hearts of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. So we know that the Holy Spirit teaches us, but the Holy Spirit, and I don't know other way to say it, he does stuff to as well. The Holy Spirit does something to you. It's not just this intellectual thing that the Holy Spirit 
pounds into our brains. He does do that. I'm not dismissing that at all. But the Holy Spirit does something to transform our lives. The Holy Spirit is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. The Holy Spirit does stuff to us. And if we don't like that, then we don't like something that the Bible expresses in terms of transformation. Galatians 5 says this. Some of you know this, right? Depending on what translation you memorize it in. But there's fruit that's produced by the Holy Spirit working in our lives, right? What's one of them? Say the first one, someone. Love, that's right. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The things that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives the fruit of the Spirit, that's what God purposed if you look at verse 4. More specific, but verse 4 talks about that God chose us and adopted us that we would be holy and blameless before him. So what God chose for us and then declared about us in Christ, justification, the Holy Spirit produces in us. We're being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And he does that because he has power. Jesus said that to the apostles and disciples. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. When you believe in Jesus, you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. His power is poured out in you to do many things, to live according to the word of God, to walk in a manner worthy to the manner uh, which you've been called, but also to strengthen you, right, and equip you in special ways that you could build up or edify, if you want to use that word, the church. We're going to see that. This is the exciting part about going into more of Ephesians. We're going to see it, that that's what the Holy Spirit does and what that means for the church. But he empowers us. So the church isn't uh, some kind of spiritual community group. The church isn't a means by which we can use our talents to receive personal satisfaction or anything like that. The church is something specifically that God has put together with a specific purpose. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that. Special gifts, they're called spiritual gifts, to serve each other and build up the church. This maintains unity in the church. So we're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity, the default position of believers together. So it's not something that we get to. That's the default place that we are together in the Holy Spirit, in Christ Jesus, unified in the Holy Spirit. And this shows something to the world. So if we think about the plan of God, like at the right time in the future, God will bring everything in heaven and earth under together the authority of Christ. What we do now in the Holy Spirit together, unified as a church, is a demonstration of that. And that's what Jasper taught us in in verse 10 just last week. So we have the power to live this way now before God even does that because we have the power of God living inside us by his spirit. And the exhortation in that, let's, let's just do that. Let's maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's live in accordance with the truth of the Holy Spirit, that that's, that's the default place we're supposed to be, unified together in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit also intercedes when he sees our weakness, when he knows we're stuck, right? So when we think about unity, or we think about walking in a certain manner to which we've been called, and sometimes we're, we feel stuck, we try to pray about it, right? And there's these longings that, in Ecclesiastes, it's called eternity that God has put in our heart, right? But there's all these longings, and we try to express them, and it just doesn't work. 
try to pray about it, and we can't do it. And if you like engines or think about building engines, it's almost like in our flesh there's this governor or something that's on our, the engine of our, of our hearts, and we can't do it. It's like, God, I don't know what to say. I, I can't even pray for this right. And the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf to God our Father. The Holy Spirit says, I know exactly what you need. I even know exactly what you want and better than you do. And I'm going to ask God the Father to provide that for you. And I'm going to carry that out in your life. So he intercedes for us. And he reminds. The Holy Spirit reminds us of things. He reminds us. He brings to our remembrance what Jesus said, but also that we're children of God. He reminds us of what God has declared, both about the world and about us. And he repeats to us truth about who God is and what God has done. So when your heart says, or the devil lies to you and says, hey, you're not good enough. The Holy Spirit says, God's love for you existed before you did. So don't worry about you. Just rejoice in what God has done in his love for you in Christ Jesus. When your heart says, I can't do it. Can't do this. The Holy Spirit says, he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. When your heart says, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it, God. I, I, I see the end. I know it's there. And I believe in that truth. But I, I don't know if I can make it to it. The Holy Spirit says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm right here in you and alongside you. Working that God's purposes would be fulfilled in your life. When your heart says, I'm afraid, I don't know what to do. The Holy Spirit says this, perhaps with a hymn, the flames shall not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. When your heart says stuff like this, these are very personal things for me, by the way. When my heart says, no, nobody understands. The Holy Spirit says, I do. I'm God. I I get it. I know. And when my own heart says stuff like this, you screwed it up again. You'll never get it right. You never even should have done this in the first place. Don't even try to do it. Give up now because you can't do it. You're going to fail. You're just going to mess more people up. The Holy Spirit says this to me, very personal example, and it's from 2 Corinthians 10. The Holy Spirit says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. When I get so focused on myself and I'm like, me, 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 I can't do it. Everything depends on me. This person doesn't like me. I can't do this. The Holy Spirit says, just boast in the Lord. He's the one who's doing it. So stop worrying about the commendation of other people or earning the commendation of those around you and trust that it's the one who the Lord commends who's approved. And I want to be approved by Jesus. And I trust that's what you want as well. Finally, along with reminding in in the same regard, the Holy Spirit testifies. This means to bear witness. We think about a lot in terms of court, right? Like you go to a court to testify. Um, Unfortunately, I have some court stories that I won't go into right now. But I think of people giving a testimony about things. You must tell the truth when you give a testimony. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit testifies, bears witness. What does the Holy Spirit in our hearts testify about? Testifies about Jesus. The Holy Spirit, his role is to glorify Jesus. 
So this is our guarantee in the Holy Spirit. The work, the truth that the Holy Spirit tells and points us to. So what he's testifying about, what he wants us to think about all the time is Jesus Christ. The work has been accomplished by God and Jesus. He promises to carry it to completion by his spirit. This is truth that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us every day, even right now as I say this. If you're now in Christ Jesus, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to be in Christ Jesus. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And if you die, you get to meet Jesus in paradise, which is awesome. Or that'll just keep happening. You will continue to be in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee until Jesus comes back. Because this work of carrying out that guarantee, it's not of yourself. Yes, God calls you to obedience, but he says that he's going to do it. And nobody, Jesus said, that God has given to him can be snatched out of his hand. That's right. And I'll say this too, no one can jump out of his hand either. Because he who called you is faithful, he'll surely do it. So no one can pull you out of the hand of Christ. No one can pull you out of a relationship with Christ. Not a smart person, not an intimidating person, not even the the wisest and most craftiest liar of all time, the devil, can pull you away from your relationship with Jesus. And you can't jump out either. Even when you feel like, I've given up, I've sinned too much, I don't even know if I want to do this. The Holy Spirit will work something in your heart that he will carry you to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God chose us in Christ as we think about this passage now. Verse 3 through 14, this long, run-on, excited, joyful sentence by Paul. God chose us in Christ. Why? To the praise of his glory. God adopted us as sons to the praise of his glory. He redeemed us with the blood of Jesus. We're bought with a price. We're owned by God. And he forgives us, and he gives us wisdom and insight. Why? Why? All to the praise of his glory. We have hope for the future, and we have an inheritance that's imperishable and unfading, undefiled. Why does God do that? It's all to the praise of his glory. That's the constant refrain. Every purpose and plan of God is worked out in Christ that we would see the glory of God and do what? And praise God. And so we prepare again to praise him right now. Our musicians are walking up. We have to recognize something as that happens. So this feels segmented. This feels like a small part of our day or week, right? Even now, this weird thought came into my head. The Bears are playing the Bucks today. It starts at one o'clock. I'm going to eat lunch and then head home and watch the game, right? What does that have to do with eternity? I know the Bears will win. God has them. But as we prepare to praise God, we have to recognize that in, in the praise that we're doing, that's more like eternal reality than the bears versus the bucks or the person at work that drives us nuts or the battles that we fight or the trials that we face. This is more like, this, these moments are more like heaven will be than the ones that we're constantly mired or caught in right now. And so I wrote a prayer really fast last night, but I'd like to pray that. And then I want us to praise God together. You know what's weird? Corey does this thing, and other worship pastors have done it. I'm going to put you on the spot. Sorry, Corey. Um, but, like, they do this thing where they talk about, I love sports, right? I just love it. 
And they do this thing where they're like, it's like this guilt um, exhortation, right? Where they're like, well, when you watch the Bears beat the Buccaneers, you're going to say, yeah! But you don't do that when you worship Jesus. You know what I do when worship pastors do that? I'm like, whatever. I'm like, you're not going to guilt me. You're not going to guilt me into praising God. But you know what's going to happen? That's the default place that God has for me in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to do something so that I can ignore the exhortation as well-meaning as it is. That's my attempt to reconcile between us. As well-meaning as that is to call us to praise God, the Holy Spirit will do something. And you know what's awesome about that when the Holy Spirit does this? It's real. And we don't say dumb things then anymore. Like, I'm just not wired that way. Because the Holy Spirit will rewire us to make us like he wants us to be. So sometimes I say, I'm not wired like that. And when Corey says, give a shout, and it's like, dude, you don't know what you're asking for. Because when I give a shout, it's not like, yay, Jesus. It's like, ah! And that's how I think it's going to be in heaven. Less dancing and prancing and elfin shoes and more, yes, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. I think I talked about a prayer that I've written down. So I'm going to read that. I'd love it if you could just kind of bow your head with me. Close your eyes. It's always funny at dinner when our boys close their eyes and then Brock will say, Hunter had his eyes open. And then, and then we say, well, how did you know? Um, Heavenly Father, we love you. And we ask you now, Holy Spirit, though often we're not accustomed to pray to you, recognizing that Jesus is our mediator, and yet you intercede for us. So hear our prayer now, Holy Spirit, as we pray this together. Teach us. Equip us now to fulfill as much as you would allow the purpose and plans of our Father in heaven to take place right now. To understand and know his glory and respond to who he is and what he's done in a manner that matches not the norms of our traditions and preferences and culture. But Holy Spirit, teach us and equip us now to praise our Father in heaven in accordance with the glory that he is due. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.